Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Khan's two cheers for Joe Biden's infrastructure plan. Why not three cheers? Well, it's simple. This is a good and much needed investment. It uses the government's spending power to nudge the market in important directions, you know, like electric cars and trucks. But it is not some radical remaking of America. It is not a socialist takeover. It isn't socialism at all. Unless you think repairing bridges before they fall into the water is now socialism. I don't think the infrastructure crowd really bargained for President Biden's massive expansion of federal government planning to rule over the economy. Not to speak of his gargantuan tax hikes, especially business, regulations knocking out fossil fuels in a Green New Deal, all that he campaigned against, but it doesn't matter. It's going to be in the package. We have described this as transformational, that is, transforming America's economy, transforming American values. And as I said before, I do want the economy to resume prosperity and job creation, especially now with the greatest stimulus being vaccines and business reopenings. But I really do not want to transform a free enterprise market-driven economy into some kind of centrally planned socialist approach that really significant curtails the power of private enterprise and expands the power of unelected elites in Washington. That's a big part of the story of this package. Former President Trump talked about draining the swamp, but President Biden wants to rebuild and reinflate the swamp into a quagmire of central planning. Mr. Biden is dreaming of LBJ's Great Society and FDR's New Deal. I'm dreaming of tax cuts by Harding, Coolidge, and Mellon, which follow the catastrophic Spanish flu of 1918. I dream of supply-side tax cuts sponsored by JFK and Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. I dream of deregulation, which rips tens of thousands of pages out of the Federal Register. So as you can see, we have competing visions here. Okay, Mr. Kudlow, let's take it down a notch on how, on that talk about how radical this is. It is not radical. But this is an insight into the mind of President Joe Biden. I actually think that the White House is okay with Republicans calling this socialist, as preposterous as that may sound. It helps them portray Biden as aggressive, radical, able to leap tall buildings into in a single bound. It's the new triangulation, triangulation 2.0. Sound revolutionary? Inflame the right to rally the left to your side and then kick aside those dead armadillos as you walk down the middle of the road. To be sure, this is a change from where we have been and a good one, okay? Ronald Reagan said government was the problem and frankly, no president since of either party has really tried to turn that around. But President Joe Biden's government is not the problem. It is actually part of the solution right now. That is not close to all I want at all or what we need right now, but it is a necessary step. Something about this moment reminds me of a title of a great novel written years ago by the Cuban-American writer Richard Farina. The book was called, Bend Down So Long, It Looks Like Up To Me. Well, I don't know about you, but that pretty well sums up how I've been feeling after years of neoliberals and Trumpites. We've been down so long that Biden looks like up, that government doing its basic job looks like up during a crisis. And I guess, you know, he is up compared to what he was and what was before. But doing a bit better than what was is not the standard we need now. That's how we got to neoliberalism and Clinton and his third way. Better than Reagan, we were told. Well, fine, this is better than Trump. It's better than Reagan. 
but let's not get too rhapsodic that we forget this is all just baby steps. As I pointed out before, the $2 trillion Biden is proposing to spend over the next eight years is barely 1% of the U.S. economy a year. It is only because we have been down so long that this looks like up and away. So get a grip. Go to work. Think bigger. Demand bolder. And let's stop settling. Stop negotiating from the middle and accepting the right wing's framing. We have to demand more of Democrats in office and Democrats in leadership and of their power to move legislation or the power of the pen in going bold. This is just a start on a better country, but we have to keep in mind right now that we're not just dealing with a crisis right now and mandating a crisis, but we have to be thinking about 30, 40 years into the future. What the millennial generation's retirement's gonna look like, how that's gonna affect society, climate change, how we are going to build back better right this very second might be on Biden's agenda. But if we really wanna transform this country and prevent the Larry Kudlow's from focusing too much on tax cuts and creating a, a bifurcated society, then we have to really start demanding more of our leaders, our democratic leaders who hold the purse strings right now, who hold the power, and are just making excuses. All right, we have a great show today. Kenzo Shibato joins us. He's gonna talk about the state of the charter school movement and organizing in Chicago, what teachers unions are fighting for right now in Chicago. It's like the same thing on repeat, but there's a little bit of, of shifting happening. It's, it's you know not where we need to be, but he's the guy who's gonna tell us. And then later we're gonna have Run Chowdhury and Rep Rabier to talk about today's news. There's a lot of it, maybe a little Matt Gates drama. Can't stay away from that, it's fun. Too, 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 too easy, too easy, too easy of a target. All right, we'll be right back. All right, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> that's the next governor. That's my impression of the next governor of Texas. Uh, could be a Republican, could be a Democrat, could be a progressive. We don't know, but I just hope that he can be shirtless all the time. <laughs> all right, uh, Kenzo Shibata. We love Kenzo. Kenzo is, of course, uh, not only is he the host of the Class Time podcast and the Kenzo Shibata show, but... Huh, with his spare time, he is a Chicago Teachers Union organizer, the functional vice president, right, at AFT-IFT mm -hmm. Local 1. Uh, and you're, you're, you teach too, right? I assume. Yeah. And thank you so much for the opportunity to come on today because I'm actually on spring break. Ew. And this is perfect, is that I, uh, this, is, this is how teachers spend our spring break. I am very far behind in taxes. I had to file several extensions because life has been hard. Um, so I spent today uh, just doing taxes. And this is a lovely diversion, oh. uh, doing your show and talking about the state of uh, neoliberal charter schools <laughs> rather I'm than- uh, Your tax break? I like that. You want to hear something <laughs> funny though is, um, and you can relate to this, you know, as a podcaster, as a content creator, we, have, we do our expenses and all the equipment that we buy and all that. And it's like, oh, don't ever call me a grifter. This is expensive. This is <laughs> but so frustrating, man. When I hear that kind of stuff, I'm like, do you think 
what do you, who, you want to call somebody a grifter, call the consultants who are getting, you know, 20% of media buys, like million dollar media buys, or the, you know, the podcast hosts that have like, are completely funded by foreign entities. I mean, mm-hmm. literally, like if I were a grifter, I wouldn't like, I would have a studio. I mean, have yeah, you seen Ben Shapiro's setup? Come on. Like <laughs> I had to set up the lights on my own, the sound, and I get complaints all the time, but guys, I, do, what do I know about this stuff? Like, <laughs> but one thing that's funny is that as a teacher, I can't write off any of this equipment that I used to teach distance, but like I got to write it all off. So like teachers start podcasts. <laughs> oh, that's a little smart. Teachers, hashtag teachers start podcasts. That's a mm-hmm. new movement. But not, okay. not for the tax break for, you know, the content. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, if we had a fair tax system, then we wouldn't have to be having this conversation. True. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, when when Jeff Bezos files his taxes, uh, <laughs> he's not asking these questions. <laughs> he's like, how do I write off my helicopter? Actually, it was written off. The helicopter pad <laughs> was free uh, in New York when he had it set up. All right. So I um, I want to have you on today because it's been a while since since I've we've had a conversation about charter schools on the show. And uh, I did some reporting a few years ago, extensive reporting on charter schools. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot about it because um the Biden administration has seemingly shifted its uh, support, at least publicly, of charter schools, um, you know, which is very different than the Obama-Biden administration, which was all, you know, leaning in on the waiting for Superman uh, propaganda, you know, methods and the Arnie Duncans of the world and um, Michelle, uh, what was her name, Michelle from, from DC? Michelle, oh, Michelle Ree. Ree, yes, remember her? You know, those, those, those fancy spreads in the magazine. about. Oh yeah, her with the broom her. sweeping away the teachers unions. Right. Yes, exactly. Because she was, you know, she's getting down to business. She took mm-hmm. up that broom and, you know, clean those schools. Um, but I, you know, before we get to like where where charter the charter school movement is right now, I'm curious if you can kind of like talk as much as you can about how they blew up, how they went from being like George W. Bush supported charter schools mm. to Obama era. Like wh- when did they start infecting the neoliberal uh, Democrats? The thing with. Uh charter schools is that this was the first time, at least in like my really observing politics, that uh, the Republicans co-opted liberal like language of inclusivity and access to, uh, um, you know, opportunities. So the No Child Left Behind Act of uh, the early 2000s, which was a bipartisan effort that George Bush uh, very happily signed into um signed into law, what that did was for the first time it broke down um, it broke down performance like test scores by all these different subcategories. Like so we were actually looking at, you know, the differences in performance. And you know, it's the problem with it is we only, or I shouldn't say we, the Bush administration only looked at those outputs and not the throughputs. They looked at like, okay, so the, um, you know, schools in black neighborhoods have lower test scores in schools in more predominantly white neighborhoods. So instead of looking at the root causes of why that's the case, those root causes were all exacerbated in this era. This was like when I first started teaching and the housing projects that all um, 
you know, my high school that I taught at serviced, they were all being raised like at a very rapid clip. And like students were being uh, schlepped all around the city to live in different places. And a lot of kids that I had, they were doing things like sleeping on an uncle's couch by the school because the only community they had was our high school. It, it wasn't the, even the neighborhood anymore. And, you know, there's all hosts of other things. When you say raised, what do you mean um, by that? Oh, just like, so there was this um, concurrently between this plan um, for, oh, this Renaissance 2010 plan to privatize the Chicago public schools, the Chicago Housing Authority had this plan called the uh, transformation, uh, no, plan for transformation. And this was when they were uh, just literally like just demolishing public housing because, in the 90s, especially in the 2000s, Chicago public housing was just, and just like the Chicago public schools, there's a media campaign against it. And again, like it was another one of those things where they didn't look at how can we make life better for these people that live in public housing. It was just casting them as a problem and casting the schools as a problem and never looking at solutions from the communities themselves for like, okay, how could housing be better? How could your, this is, this is under daily, right? This, this, this is, daily. yeah, this is under daily. This was under that perfect daily. Uh, and Duncan, Arnie Duncan was mm-hmm. our head of our schools at the time. Um, and then, uh, yeah, that was kind of like the two of them work very hand in hand and like Arnie Duncan's predecessor was this guy, Paul Vallis, who was the first CEO we had who had no teaching credentials. And that became a big push in, you know, that's the reason why we had so many charter schools, I think, is that we had managers and not uh, educators uh, running our schools at that you point. Like McKenzie people? Yes. And, yeah. 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 I, I remember teaching and you see a lot of like Pete uh, looking people that come in with clipboards and observe the classroom. And you, <laughs> you ask mean, them like, what are you Mayo, doing here? Mayo Pete people? Mayo Pete. <laughs> Transpo Pete? Transpo <laughs> Pete? Um, <laughs> okay. So, so uh, you know, we're not going to do like a deep dive on charter schools. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, there's a long history and it, it shifted its, its process, but we'll someday we'll do that. We promise guys. Um, so it, as the Bush era is embracing no child left behind, which results are in, didn't look great. I mean, mm-hmm. they were in, in like 2010, didn't look great. People started saying, okay, it was a mistake. Um, even I think the Bush, I, I'm pretty sure president Bush even said there were major mistakes. If I recall at the time, um, later, I mean, after it had it oh, gone underway. Painter Bush, not President Bush. Painter Bush, yeah, like the <laughs> painting, painting dogs, yeah, and flowers and whatever. Michelle else. Obama's best friend, not uh, yes. you know, let's uh, bomb the shit out of Iraq. <laughs> yeah, if he was even aware of it. Um, okay, so 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 no child but left behind set the stage for this neoliberal Arnie Duncan, Mayor Daley. I mean, I'm so happy that you brought that up with Chicago because Chicago is very much the root of where the Obama administration uh, developed its charter school model mm-hmm. and tried to shove it down the throats of the rest of America. I can go through so many. I'll just go through a couple of examples of how we you know the fix was in. Uh, there was a law that recently got repealed that established a charter school commission on the state level. So if you're local community gets proposed a charter school, the school board votes it down, they can appeal to the state commission that had a bunch of people with charter school interest on it. So there were like- Who who creates the commission? Is it appointed by the governor? The governor. And we had a Republican governor for the- (laughs) 
<laughs> majority of the existence of this charter school commission. And I mean, like as soon as we had a, a Democratic governor, it was uh, not that J.B. Pritzker's perfect. That was a good thing he did was eliminate this uh, this commission. But it literally was it was, you know, I worked for a teachers union for a while during that time. And it was weird because I would have to work. You know, we would work in coalition with superintendents because they did not want charters to go into their districts or these specific charters. So that, that was like, you know, as you characterize it, shoving down the throats of communities, that's so on point. There's that. And then now uh, a very recent development is the Noble Street Charter Schools in Chicago, which was one of the first very high, uh, high discipline, high success stories of uh of chicago where the kids had to wear you know uniforms they would be fined if they didn't wear the right color belt on a, on a particular day and these are poor would, would kids. kamala harris come in and arrest you if you uh didn't do your homework or something it was the same kind of vibe really because you know they would counsel kids out you know if they and oh yeah if, if a kid had any kind of inkling of a gang affiliation they would counsel the kid out so they just weren't dealing with the same issues that other schools were and on top of that they had these real draconian uh policies and like some of them were because they they really wanted to limit the amount of time students could um go to the bathroom uh because they saw that as a diversion so even like um this has been very documented girls listen kenzo yeah. jeff bezos has an interest in teaching kids <laughs> when they're young to take quick bathroom breaks you gotta you gotta teach them young quick there, bathroom breaks there wasn't a bottle problem can but they there unionize was... can the students unionize well, the, the, the staff tried and students this was um, what happens with the students, though, is once they get kind of when, whenever they wake up to like what's going on there, they just leave and they go to their public schools because it's just it's it, and like one of the horrible things they did was, um, you know, girls on their periods would have to follow the same kind of regulations for bathroom time. They weren't allowed to wear darker colored pants. Um even though like the students protested and said like, you know, we should be allowed to have this. It's, you know, it's about our health. And uh, so now the Noble Street Charter Schools is getting woke and they're, they have an anti-racist message. They're owning to their past mistakes, but doing absolutely nothing about it. <laughs> I hear you. I understand you. And I'm just going to continue doing what I said. I was absolutely. going to do because uh, the hedge funders are, way more important. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's different types of charter schools, different models. Um, Chicago model, I, I'm curious to see because it, it wasn't reflective of sort of the national policy of the Obama mm. model. Um, and if you can weigh in on like how that ties into hedge funds, how that ties into real estate, and just to top it off a little, uh, you know, cherry on top of the, the Sunday. Could you explain how they were like fixing their numbers and, and the results really weren't success? Well, one of the things that they did, and I'm going to relate this to some, uh, a little factoid about the Quiznos sandwich company that I learned is that they were like a steadily climbing business, lots of franchises opening, and they decided to cut corners. They would allow the individual franchisees to supply their own meat. So like, you know, they could get it from the cheapest bidder. And that was the downfall of the company. And how this relates to the Chicago charter schools is that one of the things that Arnie Duncan made sure to get done in Springfield, our state capital, was have um, a charter school cap with a loophole. 
So if you get a charter school um, approved by your local district, you can then open up franchise campuses all around the city. Like they don't, oh, I think some of them did call them franchises, but what makes it, I don't want to get too in the weeds, but basically like you can, once you get that uh, charter, then you can hire different people to manage the different campuses. So you would have something like um, the Noble Street uh, schools, they'd have a couple flagship campuses. And whenever they'd have press conferences, whenever they go to the school board, to ask for more money, whenever they go down to Springfield, to ask for more money, they would send the students and the, and the teachers from that campus. So those are kids that are not going to say things like, we don't have enough supplies, we don't have enough resources. Same thing with this organization called CICS, uh, which they operated charter or they operated charter schools all over the city in vastly different neighborhoods with vastly different needs. And they had one that they, uh, they opened up in an old Catholic school and they did this recruitment method where they brought in the old Catholic school kids uh, with the promise of like, you'll get the same Catholic school education for free. And so that became their flagship, flagship campus. And like those kids were, you know, their test scores are sky high. They're better than, you know, some of the magnet schools in the city. And, you know, then that was kind of the lie they were sold on over the few years. And that's how they were able to kind of perpetuate themselves is, you know, by having these flagship schools that don't represent the underfunded, uh, for lack of a better term, like stepchildren of, uh, you know, the, the flagship campuses. So essentially they were using the school that they, um, they put in students who had, uh, they, they frankly, frankly didn't educate them. And then they used them as in that one school as the model uh, of, of success. Yeah. Basically like, you know, they would have um, because of these other satellite campuses, they would get the city and the state money and they would use the model schools as like a fundraising device to like bring in the money from foundations. So it, it was a racket. Right. It is a racket. You know, I, this is, just, it's just amazing to me. I, I really, I think that there's like so many ways in this world to legally make a ton of money. And I just don't understand the people who I, like the charter schools to me, just, it's just like, it's so complicated. It's so detrimental to society. It's almost like you're, 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 a sociopath if if you're like you're basically bargaining off of the lives of of black and brown communities and and like yeah you're making some money but like there's a million other ways to make that much money if you're that type of person i have mm -hmm. like it's it's i feel like in 30 years we're gonna look back and be like what like what was obama doing why was arnie duncan like who sold them this bill of goods and what is the appeal what is the appeal like what how much money are they making, the hedge funders making off of these these charter schools? And, and by the way, simultaneously, they have to fight unions, mm -hmm. which is. The money comes in in very interesting ways. Like that's why for a while there, the message from the opposition was we have to talk about for-profit charter schools. But the thing is with nonprofit charter schools, they, you know, they run the same kind of rackets as a lot of the nonprofit industrial complex does. Like they'll have a director making a hideous amount of money, like the uh, UNO charter schools at their most, at their, the highest of their corruption and power in the city. They've had to rebrand a bunch of times. Their director was making $285,000 uh, a year, which was like a hundred grand more than the head of the entire Chicago public schools. And like, you have to think why, and like, he only managed, I want to say a dozen schools. 
And, you know, you have to ask, like, why is that? Like, why is he getting paid so much more? And so you look at, like, he was very connected to Daily. He was like one of the people that really turned that organization, which was once a very progressive organization, and made it another patronage trough for Mayor Daley. And then he was the co-chair of Rahm Emanuel's uh, first election campaign. Very clouded guy. Didn't never really spent a day in the classroom, but like also like he started out as a progressive, you know, grassroots organizer, um, which is really depressing. Um, Juan Rangel. He's like, he's enough. He went from being one of the most powerful people in the city to like, at this point, his name is Mud. Wow. Well, I mean, this, this, so this leads to the next part. All right. We, we're, we're sitting, um, it's 2021. Uh, you've had red state uprisings, uh, you know, across the country, amazing red state uprisings with, with teachers. I mean, Arizona just successfully uh, with the ballot measure was able to, I mean, the fact that you have to do this is ridiculous, but uh, organized to a wealth tax to pay to, to, to uh, increase the budget of public schools because Arizona has some of the worst uh, public schools in the country, severely underfunded, Coke model, you know, uh, do see whatever their agenda is to basically like privatize the state, I guess. Um, so this is this is good. The branding, mm-hmm. the the Democrats who may have been open to Obama and Arne Duncan's um, charter school strategy are now starting to wise up. And at the same time, so is union leadership. Uh, the teachers unions have have from the bottom up, you know, thank God, the ground up, um, really started to like sharpen their teeth, right? So do Democrats now, I mean, I look at someone like a Cory Booker, like I think he's probably trying to shy away from his charter school uh, leanings, the money that he took from charter schools and many other, you know, younger neoliberals who kind of came up in the Obama era. So is it, is, 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 is the charter school movement dying? Like, what is the state of it? Are they rebranding? Where do you think they're going to go now? I think, well, I think right now the charter school movement is kind of at its heels because education during this pandemic uh, has just, you know, we've had to shift funding away from uh, normal everyday operations to uh, PPE and things like that. It's just not that uh, there's no, you know, if you look at the bottom line, it's just not as profitable as it once was. And if you're looking at the people who got involved in charter schools who are like venture capitalist types, they, um, I think as a movement, this is our time to, to, not strike as in works that well, yeah, that would be part of it. But um, this is our time to like really organize. And the only thing I've really seen that's been effective at fighting charter schools has been the organizing in Chicago. We just had two new charter schools um, join the, or, you know, um, filed the paperwork to join the Chicago Teachers Union, which was amazing. That was something that we had to undo in the CTU. There was a law passed at one point that uh, would not allow uh, the um, charter schools to join our, um, our our federation, so that that's can you huge explain and, why that 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 matters? Because I think sometimes people get confused. Um, oh yeah, because we basically we we're already in a point where our we aren't all in the same contract. Like the Chicago Teachers Union is under one big contract, and that's everyone in the regular CPS schools, and then each charter operator. And this is also kind of confusing because there's different operators under the same flags, flagships. Uh, They have different contracts. So, and this is something that uh, 
the CTU has uh, been very good about doing is making sure all the contracts expire around the same time, which gives us a lot of power in case at one point we might all need to, to walk out at the same time because that's, that's our ultimate power. And since, you know, the uptick, we have about 10% of our schools in, in unions now, people have been shying away from opening new charters in Chicago. It's just not as lucrative. And like we had three go on strike and one almost go on strike in the past couple of years as well. And no, you know, there's no easy money in an organization where workers want to strike. Like, so I think that, you know, if we continue this kind of pressure, um, it's going to force the capitalists to like kind of back off on it. Cause I don't know if, you know, through law we'll be able to, it's just, it's still too enticing that uh, language of equity that they use. It's still too enticing. I think to a lot of, um, electeds. Um, if you don't know the number, it's, it's fine. But like percentage wise in the democratic party, what percentage of, of like federal, uh, elected Democrats do you think have in the past, at least taken charter school money? Oh, I'm not sure. Um, if I had to venture a guess, I, I would think fairly high. Um, yeah. The thing about charter school money too is that it's not always a straight line either. Like I was talking about Juan Renhell uh, from the United uh, Neighborhoods Organization, which became a charter school network, which wasn't. It was a community organization. He was um, doing a lot of uh, – he had a lot of the parents because – the thing about his schools were they were safe. Like they, because the discipline was so high, they didn't have gang members in there. So that's kind of how they were able to sell it to parents. But then sometimes, and often actually, the parents then would be expected to do political work for him. And that's part of the reason why his name is Absolute Mud right now is you don't want to be affiliated with him because that's, it just became open that that's how he was operating. Wait, when so, you say political work, what, what are you like canvassing? Knocking oh. doors, making phone calls, uh, you know. It, like he was building his own little union, except the parents building, weren't part of it. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Like, well, it was, yeah, the parents were the power, but he was the, the, the decision-making. That is insane. I've and it was a house of cards of like because, you know, he and, you know, all the people behind him, um, they're, they've been replaced by others. And I'm kind of using them as an example when I'm like talking about how there's the whole charter movement is kind of in flux because they keep rebranding. They, um, their campuses keep organizing too, which is awesome. Um, but, uh, yeah, so they're, they're, I believe a, a fully unionized, um, charter system now. So one of the things that I found, um, you know, I think it's important to, to give folks the context of just how dehumanizing and how um, dangerous charter schools are. I, you know, this isn't every charter school, but I, when I was covering this and uh, doing research on, on the effects of charter schools a few years ago, I was really blown away by how many charter schools, because of their hedge fund model, um, suddenly became, you know, not uh, profitable enough, or they decided to sell part of the real estate and it was, you know, everything was mm -hmm. set up in the structure of like a deal. So the charter school had shut down. And um, a couple of years later, the student would want to, you know, they, they'd have to go to a different school, obviously, um, or they would have graduated from that charter school and maybe they took a break and then they want to go to college and they're trying to find their transcripts. And guess what? They can't get their transcripts because yeah. the school is not in operation. There were some stories, um, in oh, oh God, horrifying, in which some of these charter schools just left the property and you'd go to the properties and there were boxes with extremely confidential information, transcripts, other stuff, um, included of 
students, financial documents, just hanging out in the middle mm-hmm. of like an, a, an abandoned, you know, building. I, don't you, th- I mean, like, <laughs> at least that seems like there should be some sort of regular, I mean, if you're going to do anything mm-hmm. to regulate like that in the meantime, is there any effort you know of to, to crack down on how charter schools uh, basically shut down when they do have to shut down? Not that I really know of. And, you know, that's, we need that. Like, I think, you know, when we think of charter schools, unless you're like really uh, like intimately familiar with them, like a lot of them are storefronts, you know, like they, they aren't these beautiful campuses that we see in commercials for them or on billboards. Like, you know, if you go into some cities that are highly charterized, like you'll see billboards for the schools, they're like marketing. That's another weird thing too about Chicago is that the public schools learn how to market themselves. So like they all have like, it's become a cottage industry. Like you can hire people who specifically know how to do the branding. They have a, a, a website maker. They have, um, you know, one of the top ones, they actually will fly a drone over your school to make this beautiful splash page for your website. And it's to compete with the charter schools. And it's just, it's such a messed up situation right now. And, you know, like I, uh, we have an eight-year-old and a few years ago when uh, we were looking at schools for him, uh, everyone's like asking like, where are you going to send him? Like, well, the neighborhood school. Right. And they're like, well, you know, but, and like people would like, they, a lot of times they would try not to sound classist when you tell them you're sending your kid to the public school, but they'll be like, well, what about this, that, and the other thing? Like, I mean, that's the neighborhood school and we love it. And um, it's, it takes And work. you're a teacher. They literally have the nerve to say this to you. <laughs> you're like, um, do you know what I do? No, not at all. <laughs> at a public Check school. <laughs> at a public school. Okay. Um, before we wrap, I, can you just give us like what's happening, a little update on what's happening with um, Mayor Lightfoot right now and, and the fight with public schools? Well, we're, um, the high schools are set to be reopened in, uh, uh, by April 19th. And um, one thing that was really critical in our fight to keep the schools at distance uh, is we won a bunch of concessions. So uh, the number of teachers who will be get granted exceptions to, to work you know, from home because either they are sick or their, parent or their uh, family are sick or their caregivers, that has been expanded. So um, it's still going to be – it's going to be really nasty. And what I – think is the most unconscionable thing about opening up high schools is that they're going to do this for 19 days of school. Like if you take all the holidays and the weekends and everything, oh my goodness. we're exposing these kids who are not eligible yet for the vaccine and teachers, many of, of us who have not been vaccinated yet uh, for 19 school days. It just doesn't make any sense to me. So we're just fighting to make it as, as human as safe as possible and getting, you know, as many people exceptions as possible. Uh, the mayor and we've reached a huge spike and the mayor refuses to close restaurants and bars, uh, citing she said that they're already on life support. So, oh, you know what life support's like? Great, great analogy. Yeah. Wow. A little tone. Deaf. 19. Tone deaf she has much? 19 people on her comms team and consultants. And that's what she said. <laughs> It reminds me of when, like, I think it was McDonald's or forgive me, I, I don't want to get sued. Some big company <laughs> that was like, you know, like that big, you know, one of the big, big 10 companies um, came out with a new slogan that was a little bit racist. And everyone was like, 
you're like, this is, they, they were like, yeah, we uh, focus grouped it we did <laughs> and it still made it through. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, 19 people on her comms team. Well, that's that, that reinforces the patronage, uh, fun <laughs> patronage that we like to play. So all for 19 days, what is her excuse? Like that is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have one at this point, and she is snapping at all the polit- the local political reporters in the city. She, Marianne Hayher, Ahern, who's one of the most respected political reporters in Chicago, she's been having these little petty, I don't want to say fights because Marianne Ahern isn't taking the bait. She's remaining professional through it. But the other day, Lori Lightfoot said to her in a press conference, what's gotten into you, Marianne? You're not like this. Something's, you know, instead of answering her questions, and it's weird because when you see Lori Lightfoot on MSNBC or like one of the more national uh, places or any of the national um, platforms, she like she gets a lot of softballs. But here she's just resorted to like name calling reporters. It's it's a sight to behold. When is she up for reelection? Uh, 2023. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. There is a um, a uh, ordinance on the docket right now in our city hall for rec- for recall of uh, elected officials. And it's actually named after Laquan McDonald, who uh, was murdered and Rahm Emanuel hid that murder to be reelected. So um, we're hoping to get that passed and get that done. When is that, when is that up? Like, what's the process? I'm not entirely sure. So I'll, I'll keep you all posted though. Oh, I'm loving this. This is like (laughs) juicy Chicago politics, but with real serious consequences as usual. Kenzo Shibata, thank you for joining us, giving us a little rapid fire on charter schools, what's happening in Chicago, why Chicago was the model for the Obama era charter school campaign and, and maybe maybe they're gonna go away i'm sure they're, they're like it's like whack-a-mole or like one of those like like animals that takes morphs into a different animal and like the predator it, it's like a virus that develops strains and we have to get a vaccine okay my metaphors are horrible I'm just they're just stop. gonna call it something else you're right <laughs> it's gonna they come are. back but it is it's, that's exactly what it's gonna be um we that's why it's all about capitalism and hedge mm. funds and yeah Kenzo Shibata, thanks for joining us. Go check out Kenzo's podcasts everywhere. Class Time Podcast, uh, Kenzo Shibata Show on YouTube. Uh, Right? You have it on YouTube and all the podcasts. Yeah, YouTube at classtime.gg and then at twitch, twitch.tv slash classtime. Cool. There you are. Look at that. Look at that logo. That's great. I'm loving it. All right. I will see you next time. And we will be right back with Arun Chowdhury and Rep Rab. Woo! Take care. Uh, breaking news. I just wanted to let everybody know that uh, even though I have received a vaccine, I had to get a COVID test yesterday and uh, to get on to, to get on an airplane, I'm I'm going somewhere next week and there it's negative. Just want everybody to know that. <laughs> it's the important things in life. I walked in and I was I like you were gonna break some news here for us. No, I was I walked into the 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 testing center, I was like, uh I'm vaccinated. Yes, yes, yes. I have to answer all the questions. Like my fiftieth, you know, test. So, gratefully, so I am. I am. I've never tested positive. So, hi, Arun. Arun Chowdhury, political filmmaker extraordinaire, uh, was once the first, right, first videographer, the official White House videographer for President Barack Obama, and he was the creative director for Bernie Sanders 2016, and he is live from Berlin, and I think we're waiting on Rep. Rab to- um, We are. 
Video stuff. I don't know what's going on over here. I've been on. <laughs> oh, no. No, we need hologram rep rap. I know. We got to figure something out here. Uh, I'm working on it. <laughs> All right. Well, while you're working on it, I'll just, uh, okay. We're, we're, I'm being told, that in my ear, they're telling me, ask him to log, to log, come back with his phone, log back on with his phone. All right. Okay. I'll give it a That's shot. That's what we're told. All right. We'll just loop you in when, when we see your face. All right. All right, Iran. So what I'm going to do is uh, <laughs> let's start. Let's start with the fun one. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yes. America's favorite congresswoman. She is really upset. She did not come here to make friends. <laughs> she did not come here to make friends at all. Um, she saves that. Oh no, that's the other one. No, she, no, she does. She does the CrossFit, right? I don't trust CrossFit people. Let me just start with that. Can we just go off on a little, little tangent? I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I might be losing some of my audience right now, but I do not trust that cult. <laughs> There's a diet attached to it. There's like a lot of drama happening at CrossFit places. They're just running way too hard down the street around the block for me. Like I run into them. I'm like, whoa, calm down people. Like <laughs> they're like training for the military. I think it's a secret paramilitary operation. That's what it could be actually. When you said it, it had the ring of truth. Yep. Anyway, the Congresswoman, the Congressman. Anyways, CrossFit Marjorie Taylor Greene. She is uh, not a fan of Dr. Fauci and thinks that he should not be paid. So let's play that clip. Oh, not a clip. Just kidding. It was a Twitter. I thought I saw it. Marjorie Taylor Greene just introduced a bill that would, quote, reduce Dr. Fauci's salary to zero until a new NIAID administrator is confirmed by the Senate. That that when we talk about force in the vote, that's that's like a force the vote strategy. <laughs> All right, I know it's funny, and I know it's not going anywhere. But we start off this show talking about how uh, we are operating. You know, the the triangulation politics of the '90s has infected every single aspect of society to the point where, you know, we can't we can't hold the Marjorie Taylor Greens accountable when, and, and others, Josh Hawley's, Ted Cruz's, who were communicating with the January 6th rioters. And they're sitting there proposing this kind of stuff, distracting the conversation, moving it further and further to the anti-science right. And the middle sits there, you know, doing nothing. So, I mean, I know this is, this is funny and it's not going anywhere, but like, is it not a symbol of just how ridiculous this is? I mean, this is like Pappy Cannon politics when no one took Pappy Cannon seriously. And now it's like 15% of our Congress a run. Yeah, I mean, at least 15%. Yeah. And the people seem to be going where the power is. I mean, I'm sure Rep. Rab has stories of, you know, exactly what people in legislatures uh, are up to <laughs> exactly rap, how rap, flip it, up. flip it, flip it. <laughs> we want to break <laughs> this up into clips later, rap, rap. You're ruining it. I don't know what's going on here. I appreciate your <laughs> indulgence. Go ahead or run. <laughs> but I, I don't know. We're even moving out of the face. There was a while where she was sort of being ostracized by a lot of different people across the spectrum. And it seemed that people wanted to kind of uh, set a certain line in the sand about where exactly where the Republican Party wanted to be, you know, vis-a-vis -vis its relationship to reality uh, and conspiracy theories and other things. And that doesn't seem to be there anymore as we're entering into the sort of 
opposition phase. Like, I don't know if you both can feel that, but I can feel the sort of shifting into like the execution strategy. Like I, they've looked at the field long enough. They've seen what they've seen. And now through 2022, they have the play and they're going to run it. That's just, that's how yeah. I feel. I think, I think you're right. And I think, um, you know, that's why on both sides, by the way, they've moved past January 6th. Like it was no big deal. Just, just, just no big deal in history. Um, I mean, what's your take, Rep Rob? Is this, is this like the new norm? I mean, it is, it's been the norm forever, but, but it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's distracting. It's the quiet part going to be, continue to be loud. (laughs) There you go. That's it. That's the next show I'm going to produce. It's going to be called The Quiet Part Out Loud. (laughs) The Quiet Part Out Loud. Yeah, that's good. Um, Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, When we have folks who are are, are far right, um, you know, extremists in the past, they've been more, they've been novelties, right? And they can say, well, they're anomalies, right? But where they support establishment um, conservatives um, are on all the things that matter most, particularly in these times, when you talk about um, reducing the size of government, what government does, um, who we should bail out. I mean, if, <laughs> right, that's right. one of the things that governments are supposed to do is bail folks out. We are the social safety net, right? Um, we provide that. Um, well, when do you do it? When don't you do it? Um, who do you go after in terms of what we consider priority um, disruptors in the worst sense of the word um, on our society? Like we didn't, uh, not a single person went to jail over the Great Recession, right? Not a single person. And that was under a Democratic administration. Um, we have mass incarceration that has been bipartisan, mass detention and deportation that has happened under both uh, Republican and Democratic administrations. So when you're talking about the uber right wing and they say some crazy stuff that even um, ultra conservatives are uncomfortable about, so what? <laughs> when the establishment is very much um, uh, right wing, and there, there has to be other terms because right and left are, are no longer they're not meaningful because they've been co-opted in so many ways. Let's say um, uh, establishment, right? Because that establishment it transcends political ideology, right? Uh, but it's about embracing certain structures and systems that transcend those ideologies, but at the same time affirms them. So if you are a Wall Street Democrat, Like, I don't care what you think about the LGBT community or you're against Asian hate or whatever, right? Like, I get that. That's great. Those are addressing symptoms. Um, You know, the crisis that is capitalism, um, that is imperialism and militarism, uh, all based on white supremacy and heteropatriarchy. Anyone who doesn't feel comfortable about using these terms is suspect. Mm. The suspect, if if you have an elected official that is uncomfortable talking about white supremacy, talking about patriarchy, talking about imperialism or militarism, um, they are part of the problem. And we have to use those words. And even and we can find different words because not everyone knows what that means. But we also have to be we also have to take the time to reach people where they are, not talk down to people and 
and explain these systems of, of oppression in ways that people can understand. And that shouldn't be hard. I do it all the time. But if you're too lazy or too concerned that you're going to piss off lobbyists or your biggest donors or corporate media, then you are part of the problem. And perhaps you shouldn't be in these positions to begin with. And on us, one second, Ren, on us, I think it's important for us to understand that there's we are trying to expand our movement. And so for us to, a great lesson of movement organizing is you set demands of your lawmakers, you set demands of, of your opponents, your opponents, but the people you're trying to move, you want to reach them where they are and bring them in. You know, explain why the patriarchy and capitalism are intertwined. I mean, I have to have this conversation at least five times a week with women, as we approach, as we're fundraising, I have to literally educate female donors who label themselves progressive Elizabeth Warren Democrats uh, as to why the patriarchy and capitalism are intertwined and why, you know, this matters. Um, but but I know a lot of organizers now, they're using the tactics that, that and, and Joshua Con Russell talks about this all the time, he's a regular on our show, using the tactics that you use against your opponents on your potential allies and, frankly, your own allies and your colleagues. It's about growing the movement, not eating each other alive. All right, Aaron, I'm sorry, I, I, I chucked. No, 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 it builds on and it's going to come right around perfectly because what I wanted to say was it, it's not just about uh, you know, arming your allies, you know, with facts, figures, the truth, narrative, stories to tell. Um, it's also about countering what others are doing because other stories are being told. And if you want to see this story being uh, happening in steroids in Europe, it's in Great Britain where they just released a report. Uh, the Tories explaining in a very polite British language that there is no systemic racism in Britain and that that's a good thing. And <laughs> that everyone can relax. <laughs> just take it easy now. And this is insane from the country that essentially invented modern racism. Uh, uh, oh, was it written by, um, by, by Prince William? Yeah, yeah, totally. And when you see this coming out, you're like, this is ridiculous. People are just going to laugh at it. You know, and liberals sort of say this is ridiculous and feel good about bashing it in the press. But what they're doing is giving ammunition to everybody at the pub who's having the argument who's sort of vaguely on their side. Everyone who sort of feels that grudge and wants to be there now has a real argument they can wield and then maybe get to those in every family, a couple persuadables in the middle. It's like when um, right-wing media like uses a report from the Heritage Foundation to cite their case or when centrist media uses another report that was cited, you know, an actual like uh, journalistic report that was cited from another report that was cited from a blog that was cited from a Twitter account that was cited from some guy in his basement. Like, like that's the ecosystem that we're, we're, we're dealing with. Um, so, you know, but I, I, before we wrap, go on to the next topic, the reason why I bring this up is I know everybody loves to, to dunk on these people and it's really entertaining, but from our perspective, you know, we start off the show talking about triangulation 2.0. We start off with a clip of of um, uh, Larry Kudlow talking about how this infrastructure program is like, you know, rabid socialism and super far. When the reality is, is the money's there. It's it's less than one percent of. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. It's and. But I think that the Democrats want that. They want that to be the conversation so that they don't have to have the deeper, more systemic conversations that are 
that, that they owe the public in a crisis moment like this. It's a different triangulation, whereas in the 90s, it was about branding yourself a little bit more like Reagan and big government is bad. And today it's like, no, Biden wants to be labeled as big government when it's not. It's just what government does on a daily basis, except they haven't really been doing for the last, you know, several decades. So the power conversation is shifting. I mean, what do you guys think of that? Is that it seems I think that's a, a reasonable assessment. I mean, this is the job of this is the job of government. This is what we're supposed to do, right? We're supposed to um, um, be stewards of, of public monies to promote a society that is uh, fair and open and provides opportunity for all. I mean, that's in in, in in theory, and I, I'd like to see more in practice. Um, so, yeah, that is the job. But also, people, we're enumerate as a society, right? So we don't understand big numbers. That doesn't make us stupid, but they're massive numbers. What does a trillion really mean? What does a billion really mean? There's very few people who can process things on that level. Um, and that's okay, but that means that we have to be creative in terms of how we did it. I think I mentioned previously that uh, Ben from Ben & Jerry's did it regarding uh, you know demilitarizing our, our federal budget and talking about how many Oreo cookies with each Oreo representing, I think, $10 million, um, how much money we put towards the Pentagon. And when you see that stark reality of how much we're, we're overfunding, overfunding um, our military and how one, I think it was more than 10 million, maybe 1 billion, yeah. it was one Oreo could go to, to fix any number of things that everyone cares about, everyone then you're able to do that. But um, that requires um, not just bold vision, but understanding how to, um, how to express that in ways that people understand. And I have some experience with that more recently because I've been talking about reparations and I'm trying to speak beyond the choir, beyond the people who understand it and believe in it. I'm talking about the people who maybe don't even know black folk who don't know American history, who don't know that there was slavery in Pennsylvania, who don't know any of those things, but maybe getting maybe a server in South Central Pennsylvania, and she's a working mom and uh, believes in QAnon, perhaps, or other conspiracy theories, but she's trying to feed her, her, her children, and she's a single mom, and she gets paid $2.83 an hour in Pennsylvania for this sub-minimum wage. She needs to know that the reason she's getting paid that little is because of slavery, as a legacy of slavery, sub-minimum wage. And if we can prove in, in visceral ways how it impacts people's own families, own lives, um, legacies of, of oppression that hurt people far beyond Black folk who are the boogeyman or the representation of all that is violent and wrong in society, and show that it, these tentacles go far and wide, then there's a felt need to address it because it hurts them where they are. And perhaps they can see they have more in common with folks who are not the enemy. And the en enemy is actually these structures that seek to uh, um, divide us and go after one another. It's interesting you say that because if we were to talk to, say, like the um, the patriotic right that believes that we should be spending money on defense and we broke it down like how much of the money that we spend on defense goes to troops and how much of it goes to a missile that's just like sitting there waiting never it's never going to be shot um i mean and, and that, that 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 ties back to like why are we spending well it's really just because uh kirsten cinema's constituents who work for raytheon i mean literally that's what this is about like we're it's coming down to like that's what this is about 
Yes. Kirsten Cinema's constituents that work at Raytheon. And that's what's holding everything up. Did you see um, there was a, a, I'm sorry, I have to jump in yeah. because it's so outrageous. And it's just, you know, as a peacenik dear to my heart, uh, there was a, just a report, I think it was on CNN, um, that there are many contracts that the government will have to pay penalties if we leave Afghanistan before a yes. certain time. Because yes. that's we're going to get to that. <laughs> we actually <laughs> sign contracts. We sign actual contracts, international contracts, and we'll have to pay penalties. Oh, well, we print the money. You know, well, it is what it is. Okay, on a similar note, um, you know, we're, the, 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 the target of pretty much the left right now is is uh, is Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin. And even if they are to be primaried and defeated, uh, something that it's going to be a game of whack-a-mole and there'll be another one that pops up. So it turns out Stephanie Murphy from Florida, everyone loves her, by the way. She is just phenomenal. Um, <laughs> Stephanie Murphy from Florida is uh, unions lover, leftist lover, Floridians lover, She's like the quintessential mm, Emily's List candidate, if I were to kind of put it out there. <laughs> I don't know the right way of saying it. I'm going to get attacked now. Um, and what I mean by that is like wealthy, pearl clutching, that kind of person. Um, all right, let's 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 put that up there real quick. The the hurdles for for Biden here, because as much as they're still kind of giving lip service to the idea that this could be bipartisan, it's certainly clear to me that, that there's no way that that's going to happen. If you disagree, I'd, I'd be fascinated to hear your take on it. But it does seem like they're going to have some challenges keeping all Democrats on board in the House and that there may be uh, some serious pressure points for the administration, both from the progressive left and moderates in the caucus. Yeah, I agree with you entirely. If there's one thing Republicans can agree on, it's they don't like taxes. And this bill would raise taxes. <laughs> so, I mean, Republicans may not agree on anything else, but they're against that. Um, I do, again, you have a very good point. There's going to be, on the left, you have progressives like uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They don't think it's big enough. They don't think $2.5 trillion is enough. They want to spend more. And then you have moderates let's say like a Stephanie Murphy of Florida, who's eyeing possibly a state uh, statewide run, you know, they think it's too much money. They're concerned about the, you know, the raising corporate taxes in a pandemic. You know, the economy is still fragile. Uh, I think you, you'll, you'll have other Democrats who have their own pet issues. There's a bunch of Democrats. Uh, okay. Tom Swazi. <laughs> of so uh, I'm so happy you mentioned Tom Swazi because Tom Swazi is representative from uh, Long Island and Queens. Uh, he is a member of the Problem Solvers Caucus. Do you want to know what the fun part about the Problem Solvers Caucus is? This is the great gimmick here. They cause so, problems. They, ca they cause problems. Um, they're a caucus, a bipartisan caucus with only like a couple Democrats in it. And they vote internally in secret about where they're going to go on a bill. And then as a unit, they all have to vote that way. So the Democrats and the caucus say, well, you know, we, we, we made a decision internally. And so I now have to vote with the Republicans. That is creative, creative caucusing. I want to write a book someday called, or maybe you guys should, it's not going to be for me. Maybe Rep. Rap should. Creative, uh, creative legislative caucusing strategies. Right. <laughs> How to hold up your government. Real stuff. How to hold up your government. So Stephanie Murphy, you're going to have this whole cadre of people, even on the left too, um, where now it's like, oh, I, ha I can get drunk on power and my pet issue, which might be a very real good pet issue. Everyone's doing the force the vote. 
essentially. So yeah, what do we think of this? Uh, this is uh, horse trading, you know, one hundred and one. This is uh, this could be um, posturing so that they get their pet project in the mix. Um, it could just be old-fashioned uh, pandering. And then there are people who actually believe this nonsense. Uh, when, when, do, when, when do the uh, saber-rattlers ever talk about how much it costs to, for another endless war? This never comes up. It's about America, right? And if it's about America, then what better investment could we make than our infrastructure, public health, jobs, um, you know, neighborhood businesses, um, all of these things, that's, <laughs> how do you, you know, helping folks from being evicted, you know, uh, on and on. This is where they need, we need government most of all. And they're going to have to decide what side of history they want to be on. But this is ultimately, there, there's no justification, no good economists uh, worth their salt is going to say, oh, uh, this is too much. Because what happens in infusing this type of investment in our economy is that it, it will create jobs. It will stimulate um, consumer activity. So this notion that this, this is too big is patently absurd. Now, you can misspend $2 trillion. You can misspend $100 million. We have Don't a worry, quarter... Fox News will talk about that. They'll talk right, about the shrimps in... on treadmills. Exactly. But in Pennsylvania, we have a quarter billion dollar tax credit for the horse uh, industry to help rich white folk and their horses. Now, then they never talk, we support every well, not we, you know, but, you know, it is supported every year yeah. uh, in our annual budget. No one complains about that. Why do they not complain about it? Most of them don't know about it. Um, and they don't realize that that money does not have to go to that purpose and can be used for things that most people care about. I just want to see more of the more of the famous Nancy Pelosi discipline. I want to see Ch the reason Chuck Schumer is leader. The nail that sticks up gets hammered down. Like, what's the problem here? How come, how come only people who get out of line when it comes to something about green energy, you know, ever end up right. sort of getting put in their place? That's right. The people should be squashed. The road to transformational change was not done on having even even if they lose, even if they don't care about these little pet issues or whatever comes up, we can't have a million of these conversations. That's not how the New Deal was done. Yeah, so I mean, this I is discipline. This is my my. I've been do, beating the drum on this all week. You know, Senator Schumer is talking about canceling fifty thousand dollars in student loan debt, and he's disappointed, and he wants at least Biden to do the ten thousand dollars. Disappointed. Disappointed. Go get, okay, number one, Biden's blaming the Senate and, and Manchin uh, and the right wing and whatever he's blaming it on. It's like, you've got a pencil, you've got a pen, you have the ability to eliminate federal student loan debt with the swipe of a pen. You have that power. Nobody's holding it over you, right? And Schumer, grow a whatever grow something patriarchal Act like you own the government because you have most of it yeah. right you have most of it you don't like what oh joe manchin is like you know it's not just about primarying joe manchin it's about these guys you know we, we, billions of dollars have been spent to make sure that their consultants were fed <laughs> right what is it going to take for us to hold their feet to the fire? Because this is absolutely ridiculous at this point. You've got the government. You're going to lose it in a minute and a half. And yeah, it's almost if, done. 
And guess what? You're going to be almost in. As soon as you lose it, that's when you should be worried because that's when you're most vulnerable for a primary. And those billions of dollars of consultant fees may not actually fight it off. I just, okay. Um, Let's move on to media because uh, this is a great topic for us to discuss. I'm really happy you guys are here um, to discuss this. So this broke this morning. Uh, The Supreme Court upholds the FCC's move to relax media ownership rules. Uh, All right. So they ruled on Thursday this morning that the FCC was within its legal authority to relax a series of media ownership rules in 2017, when Republicans obviously still hold a majority on the commission, the FCC commission. Uh, It was a unanimous opinion that was written by Brett Kavanaugh, uh, quote, that that the FCC made a reasonable predictive judgment based on the evidence it had in changing the rules. This has huge implications on ownership, uh, you know, diversity ownership, uh, more women, more people of color owning uh, different media companies, and of course, this this really comes down to like monopolies. You know, the, the, whether it's the the Sinclair Media or the big guys um, owning different you know, stations, whether it's radio stations or television stations. Um, So yeah, it also eliminated a rule that prohibited the ownership for more than two TV stations and radio stations in the same market. Um, And the condition that of a merger of two outlets, at least eight independently owned TV stations remain in the same market. You know, the fact that we're even having this conversation is like absolutely ridiculous in the state of of democracy. But uh, Rep. Rab, I'll go to you because I know you have a lot of thoughts about how media is structured. Yeah, well, I mean, people don't realize how monopolistic it is already. We have mm-hmm. we have this false notion of choice in this in this country, where we can say, "Oh, I like this, I like this, I like this," and they don't realize it's owned by the same corporation. Um, that's a problem, uh, particularly when it ta- when we talk about journalism and how we get our news and the distinction between journalism and just um, consumerism. Right? We sh- it shouldn't be about consuming uh, news, right? It should be about processing, right? And sharing it. And this is really important in our, in our nation's history. My great-great-grandfather founded the Baltimore Afro-American newspaper in 1892. It's been in my family five generations. I was on the board for 10 years. And when you talk about independent media, it has a huge impact on social justice issues. Um, my ancestor's paper um, if a black person was caught with my my family's paper, um, you know, not too long ago in the wrong places and all over the South, they could have been lynched because the power of the fourth estate is so is so meaningful, particularly in the hands of the oppressed. And when we're talking about an era that was facilitated under Clinton, where uh, that consolidation. Uh, was intensified. You have a a greater, we have a more pluralistic society, a more ethnic diversity, all kinds of things, and even less representation and equity in this this, uh, ecosystem, media ecosystem that matters most because it's now more invasive than it's ever been. And we have issues around privacy, around intellectual um, property, we even have concerns around, uh, you know, foreign intervention, right, used in, in the electoral process. So this is, a, this is an issue that influences every other issue we care about. And uh, we have to build up media literacy 
And that's something that uh, we, we have conservatives here in Pennsylvania who talk about civic literacy. And it's normally about probably uh, learning the Pledge of Allegiance or something or le- learning about the founding fathers or what have you, really basic uh, kind of reductionist type of things. But we need to have a civic literacy that puts in context how our media and um, journalism is, um, is represented within that mix. We have to do it. Well, it's interesting because it's not even just um, educating the public about how the media functions. I don't think our lawmakers understand how complicated. I mean, remember when everything happened with Cambridge Analytica, like half the lawmaker, more than half in Congress were like, uh, (laughs) what? (laughs) Um, And and, I mean, the space that we're living in right now, it's like we haven't even gotten to just how the power of like you could not get away with the things that YouTube gets away with if it was on the airwaves. You know what? Did you see what I'm saying? Like yeah. Fox News had women on primetime TV. That doesn't exist on YouTube politics. Right. Keep that in mind. I run. Yeah, <clears throat> and this is also playing itself out internationally, and it will be coming back home soon in Australia, where uh, Facebook is being asked. Uh, Rupert Murdoch is, of course, from Australia, but he's not popular there. So it was a very good test case uh, to see if Facebook had to pay the people who make the news uh, rather than just sort of being the one who make who makes the advertising money off of the news. Uh, and they deemed that actually the creators should make it and not Facebook. So Facebook actually had to write a check to Rupert Murdoch, which again was bittersweet in the Australia where they hate both of them. Uh, but it's interesting in terms of talking about who is responsible you know, uh, who is pushing things, who is making the algorithm, if the person making the algorithm is not the same person who benefits from a certain kind of news becoming more popular, that actually does change the media landscape. Interesting. I have to think about this now. <laughs> huh. I mean, we've discussed, uh, it's, it's very hard to kind of see how it would play out. Um, but I know Lance from the Turfs has talked about like a union, union of, of uh, content creators, at least on YouTube. I mean, it's well needed because they change the algorithm and suddenly everything shifts. People talk about it all the time. Um, but, you know, I'll tell you, you know, what we made last month is significantly different than what we're making this month. And it's partly because, yes, people are not consuming as much media post-Trump. Sure, there's a natural aspect of that, but it's not like uh, YouTube does not have the ability to make sure that people are digesting news and the right news. And when you look at the top shows that come up on Facebook, it's nine out of 10 of them are right-wing cuckoo media. And it's not because it's more shareable to an extent, yes. Um, It's because it's boosted. (laughs) And you know, we know because five years ago, the numbers were very different on the left. millions would tune into our live streams. And now it's ridiculous. It's like down to 20. Um, something's got to give. And, and hopefully our lawmakers, maybe maybe folks like Rokana and others can, mm. can really start to prioritize us because it's having a damaging effect on our democracy. Uh, no better evidence than what happened on January 6th. Final thoughts? Yes, Rafael, yeah. I know you got one. Yeah, um, I, I think it's also important to remember that the airwaves um, are public domain. We own them. And then we commodify them through government and then sell them off, license them to folks with a lot of money. But that process is overseen by the government, right? That all the things that we, all of our devices, um, all of the, the internet, everything, it's chopped up. And we, the people, 
uh, are supposed to decide how it's happening through our elected and appointed officials. That's really important. The same with um, uh, Wall Street, right? The uh, capital markets, when things go public, right? When you're when these folks have start they have startups and they get a bunch of money, they're a private entity, and then they want to sell um, shares um, on the stock market. That is regulated by our federal government. That is a, a privilege that they have access to through government. We control that. And if we say we want an equitable process where all people are represented, it's not just the elites, not just the right wing, not just this or that, that is in the province of government, the people who we elect to make that happen. It is not just something that was created by one entrepreneur or one corporation or one industry. That is actually created and overseen by our government. And as we're, if, we, if we build the literacy around all of those things, we can, have, we can manage our expectations and we can mobilize to say, this is what success looks like. This is what shared prosperity and openness look like in things that are regulated and managed by the government itself. And most people don't know that. Ryan, final thoughts? No, I mean, I think that's so well, that's so well said. It, we're supposed to have, we act like these things are happening to us. Yes. You know? Uh, All comes back to power at the beginning of the conversation. Where are the power dynamics? And the one thing that we know the private sector fears above all else is competing with the public sector, despite all the propaganda that tells you the contrary. So I I don't know. I don't know how it all happens, but I think part of bold transformational change, if anyone from the administration is listening, would be to revitalize Voice of America, would be to try to consider making domestic news standards, would be to uh, you know, create competitors, uh, a, a, a competitive online classified that doesn't mimic all the things Facebook does, but maybe one or two of them. Yeah. Yep. Arun Chadri, political filmmaker, coming from Berlin. Uh, always a pleasure. Rep Rab, author of Invisible Capital. Just made me think of that. Representing the 200th district of Pennsylvania, uh, Northwest Philly. And Nomi Khan's host of the Nomi Key Show. Thank you all. <laughs> Always a pleasure. We will see you soon. Soon, soonish. People know what I'm talking about tomorrow. All right. Uh, We got some shout outs. Thanks to everyone on Twitch for the level two hype train. I am not saying this, Dorsey. Choo choo, pogger, no meat, cheer. I hate you. Kowalski from Nebraska says, I'm at the geographic center of the continental U.S. Does that mean I'm the most powerful centrist? I mean, it depends on if they're fracking there, like what the power grade is. Maybe power comes from the coast, not in the center. And so as a result, I mean, yes, you'd still be the most powerful centrist. Hmm, Curious. Kyler Asato says, will Matriarch be investing in in the progressive Illinois movement? Lots of elections up there and no one running it, it seems. Um, it's a little early because, you know, we have redistricting right now. So I think a lot of folks are thinking about running uh, in a lot of these districts and are not sure what the maps are going to look like. Every state has their own redistricting rules. Um, hopefully by the end of the year, most states, uh, if not all of them, will will know what the uh, congressional lines look like and who's running where and what, you know, that's, I think, the biggest uh, calculation right now. Uh, thank you to Olivia Ally, Ally, who gave out a 
tier one, a one tier, one community sub gift today on Twitch. Thank you, Olivia. And thank you to Midi Docs who gifted two tier one subs today on Twitch. And Shane Barreto says, I would recommend giving this a listen. Episode 49, epidemiologist Dr. Michael Osterholm update on COVID-19. It's a rundown on the variants and the causes and the issues around not having a global vaccinations effort. Try to stay safe, everyone. Absolutely. We've talked about the apartheid, um, the vaccine apartheid on the show a bit. I think we're going to touch on it a little bit more. All right. Schultzy 100. Wow. I like hearing about Rab's history. Interesting stuff. I do agree. Professor Harvey K. Mixing it up in the live chat. Hi, Professor Harvey K. <laughs> Hope you're well. Um, and let's see what else we have here. We have Midi Docs and Mario who work in those algorithms. As always, thank you for your time and your effort. And huge thanks to our YouTube mob, mods, Bob C, Chokin, The Orb, Chuck Diesel. Thank you. So grateful. And over on Twitch, Dorian Sapiens, A Difficult Truth, Nug Wrangler, Our Means, Separate category, Nightbot, because Dorsey loves Nightbot. I'm going to get him a mug that says Dorsey loves Nightbot, and he's going to drink it when we go over our ads together and talk about CBD. That's what we're going to do. But thank you to everybody for keeping the chat rooms troll free, and we will see you tomorrow for Fem Friday. Same time, same place. Stay in solidarity. Mm-hmm.